What is the purpose of life? Why are we here? What is it all about? Remember the hokey pokey? You know, that's what it's all about? No. What is it all about? It's all about bringing glory to God. It's about the glory of God. It's about the good of other people. That's it. It's so simple. And that's, that's the commandment. And on all this hangs the law and the prophets. Bringing God glory, making God happy, loving God with all our heart, and loving others as ourselves. The good of others. So what are we truly living for? The Bible says that the gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Welcome to Pulpit Power, featuring Pastor Tony Skeving, Senior Pastor of Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. Today's message was previously preached before a church audience. And now, here's Pastor Skeving. All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew and the 22nd chapter. Matthew chapter 22, by way of background, uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees who made up the Sanhedrin, the ruling board of the 70 elders, great elders of Israel, were, uh, I guess, two groups in Israel that did not agree on a lot of things. And they made strange bedfellows, they really did. But they had yoked up because they had a common enemy. Guess who it was? the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you find him in Matthew chapter 22 trying to trip up Christ. First of all, it's the Pharisees, and they come to Christ in verse 15, and they took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. Then they ask him that question about whether it's right to give to uh, Caesar or not. Of course, they hated the ground Caesar walked on, but they had yoked up with the Herodians, again, strange bedfellows, who were somewhat loyalist to Caesar, in, in an attempt, basically, to trip up the Savior. And you remember Christ's answer. He said, render to Caesar the things that be Caesar's, and to God the things that be God. And so the Pharisees tuck their tail between their legs and kind of slither off, and the Sadducees show up. They tag off, and now they have a scenario. They present it to Christ. It involves seven brothers, marrying the one gal. You remember the story. And the issue at hand is here, that the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. So they were, they were giving this impossible scenario, anything possible, to make it look like there can't be a resurrection because whose wife is this gal going to be in the afterlife, quote-unquote? And, of course, again, Christ ties them up in knots and says, you don't marry in the afterlife, you silly goose. And, and basically, they go off, and now the Pharisees show back up again. And that's what we want to hone in here. We pick it up in Matthew 22 and in verse number 33... It says, when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. What are we talking about that? As we talk about the fact it all revolves around this. It's all about this one thing, according to Christ. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we come before Thee. We ask You for help to listen and to understand and to retain 
and comprehend and most of all practice what we're about to hear. Lord, I do pray now that you would speak to our hearts. And Father, that we would be honest and that we'd look within. And Father, that we'd realize where we're lacking and how we need you and, and your grace to be what we ought to be as Christian people. Lord, help us, direct us, guide us now at this time. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it all revolves around this thing. And it's, a, it's an incredible truth. Because it's talking about the one thing that is, I guess, number one with God. If we could put it that way. You know, if something is number one, I mean, that sets it off from everything else, doesn't it? Guinness has amassed a fortune compiling things that are number one. The World Book of Records, the biggest, the longest, the oldest, the the smallest, the highest, things that are number one, they just stand out. That team that wins the Super Bowl, that is number one, boy, it's, it's set apart from all the other teams. That team that wins the World Series is set apart from all the other teams. That, that Olympic athlete who takes that gold, gold ribbon, boy, he's just on top of all the competition there. He wears the crown. Well, Christ here is talking about in life, what is number one? And he says it's to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the zenith folks. This is the pinnacle. This is the crest. This is the top, if you will, the summit. Now, by way of review, Christ has shut up the Sadducees, and now the the Pharisees are back for more. They're going to get more. And they come, and we find out they're trying to entangle him in his words, tempting him, we find that word in verse 35. And they say, Lord, what's the greatest commandment? Well, what the Lord does is he quotes from the Old Testament, which, of course, he wrote and knew like the back of his hand, and he takes a passage that is today located in our Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. All your heart, everything you crave for, everything you want and long for and desire inside, you ought to want God above that. With all your mind, everything you think about, It ought to revolve around, what's God think of this? What's God going to think of this? Or your soul, your personality, your being, your makeup, your soul. And every Jew knew this verse. It was perhaps the very first verse that the little lads learned in the synagogue. I mean, we have kids in the nursery, and and they could quote John 3.16. This was the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. I mean, just realize that everybody in a moment knew it, and it was so basic, and it was so simplistic. But Jesus didn't stop at just this command. He added something in verse number 39. He said, And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now, he didn't have to add that. He wasn't asked that. The Pharisee didn't say, What's the first and the second greatest commandments? No, he just asked for the first. But Jesus Christ mentions this, and he connects it and combines it, and there's a reason for it. Something we need the Lord's help to see here. Something I really never saw before. He says in verse 39, the second is like unto it. There's a connection here. There's something that aligns it with it. They, they are combined in some way. And that's what we need to see here today. As we talk about what it all revolves around, we see what I call, first of all, the cynical attitude. The cynical attitude. In verse 35, then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? 
Now, there's two words that stick out to me. They're both in verse number 35. The first one is lawyer. <laughs> one of them which was a lawyer. You've heard the old joke. What does it sound like when you accidentally run over a lawyer? Boom, boom. Er, boom, boom. Er, boom, boom. Er, boom, boom. You, you finish the job real good, okay? Look, if you're a lawyer, I'm just kidding, all right? Kind of. But anyway, it's just a joke. But that first word is a lawyer. Who, who, who likes a lawyer? You know, well, I have lawyer friends, quite honestly. But the, the first thing here is he's a lawyer. And the second thing is he's tempting. Notice that's the second word in verse number 35. Tempting him. He is tempting him. Is he sincere? No. Now, a lawyer at that time is not like a lawyer at our time. We think of a lawyer today as somebody who's practicing law. But this isn't law as we know it and as we, we know it today. This would be the law of Moses. A lawyer at that time learned the law of Moses. So can you imagine you personally or me personally trying to match wits with this guy? He's a Pharisee. He's a lawyer. He knows the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, memorized them, knows them like the back of his hand, and you're going to match wits with them? I would rather not match wits with them. Now, the account in the book of Mark gives us a little bit more detail about this guy. He's actually a scribe, so he takes it a step further. They didn't have Xerox copiers. They didn't have Gutenberg printing presses. They didn't have any way of recopying the Scriptures at that time except by hand. A scribe, uh, for his job, his livelihood, was to perfectly make copies of the Word of God. No mistakes could not be any mistake. It would have defiled the Word of God. So he's a scribe. He does it for a living. He is highly skilled when it comes to knowing this law, the law of Moses. You wouldn't want to debate him here. You, want to, you wouldn't want to match wits with him. He lived to debate people, and he was the spokesman for the Pharisees. They shoved him up front, and he's going to be their spokesman. But the account in Mark also gives us some very, very interesting insight about this one individual. Jesus Christ answered the question, and this guy, you remember that, and you've read this, he, he kind of quips back and, and he says, wait a minute, okay, uh, to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul is the greatest commandment, and yeah, to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and remember that guy, Jesus said, thou art not far from the kingdom of God? That's this guy. So he's not a total smart aleck, apparently. I mean, maybe he just gets shoved up front because he's a good debater, but, but we find here that Jesus Christ knows what's in his heart and that this is perhaps even a, a pivotal point in his life that kind of trips him over into salvation. But for whatever reason, at this point, he is, he is apparently the antagonist, but he's not. He's more of a seeker. And so he's been pushed up front. He asks the question here. Now back to the crowd of the Pharisees here. Here's the question. We find in verse 35, Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him, and saying, Master, which is the great commandment? In the law. Now, when we think of the commandments, we think of the ten. You know, I have no other gods before me. Don't take God's name in vain. Um, don't make a god of your own imagination. Honor thy father and thy mother. Keep holy the Lord's day. And thou shalt not kill, and thou shalt not covet, and thou shalt not uh, lust or commit adultery or, or steal. Or, or you know, We think of the big ten. But there's really lots of commandments back there in the book of Deuteronomy. Leave it to the, the Pharisees to categorize them. They're always doing that. Well, this, this sacrificial law is greater than that one. And, and circumcision tops this one. And purifying tops that one. And, and, and ceremonial washings tops this one. And, and they, had, they had rivaling schools, by the way. 
If you were a Pharisee, you were more than a Pharisee. You were a certain type of Pharisee because these guys couldn't even agree with each other. They all were, were splitting hairs, and they did it all day long. I mean, get a life, right? By the way, there's a lesson here for us. We read in, in uh, Titus chapter 3. Turn there, if you would, here. In Titus chapter 3, we find out what we're not supposed to do here. Titus chapter 3, and in verse number 9, it says, But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. We find here these, these Pharisees debating all day long about oh, questions of the law. And leave it to them. Those Jews had 613 laws. And of those 613 laws, 248 were positive laws. 365 were negative laws. Thou shalt not do this, and thou shalt not do that, and so on and so forth. So they had all these laws. Now, here comes Jesus Christ, and they hated him. Not because he was defiling the law. He said, I came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. They hated him because he was cutting into their business. Plain and simple, they lived for power. Well, Christ was getting the following now. They were losing their sway over the people. They lived for money. And uh, Christ was cutting into their money business. They lived for recognition. And we find out that now the crowds were recognizing Jesus. These guys were applause junkies, really. And they hated Christ. And so they're trying to trip him up. It's like fighting some guy who has an M16 or an Uzi with a slingshot. They were totally outgunned and, and mismatched. Imagine trying to, to match wits with God himself. I mean, as a 12-year-old boy, Christ was tying this crowd in knots there in the temple. So here we find out they just can't do it. And so... They have this, this final thing, and, and you're getting close to the end of the book of Matthew. They've been trying everything up to this point. And so they ask him this question. I'm not exactly sure why. There must have been a follow-up afterwards, but what is the greatest commandment here? Well, what did Christ have to say? We see the cynical attitude. We see the contentious argument. Thirdly, we see the concise answer here. What is the concise answer of Christ? In verse 37, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. He says this is first and foremost. This is primary. This is the thing, the ultimate fundamental uh, blue ribbon thing, if you will, that we need to do is love God with all our heart mind, soul. And it was easy for him to quote, no doubt, the first thing he learned as a little boy even, is this very verse. It, it was the greatest commandment in all the Bible, and every Jew knew it, to love God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. In fact, it would be something for us to stop and, and, and say, is there something in competition with our hearts between us and God? Is there something in competition that we're thinking about continually? Instead of loving God with all our mind, is there something with our soul that competes with loving God? What stands in competition with our love for the Lord? That's a very, very good question. We should look within our hearts. What is it, is it that keeps us out of church? What, what is it that keeps us from giving as we ought to? What is it that keeps us from praying? Boy, that's a good question. Or serving. 
What stands in competition with God? What is it that we run after? What is it that we thirst after more than God? You know what the psalmist said back in Psalm 42, verse 1? As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. The heart here is the deer. And the, the deer running through the woods comes up on the, the brook. He's thirsty. He's panting. He wants a drink. As the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Am I there? Are you there? God help us to seek to be there. God help us to want Him and to enjoy Him. Basically, not what we get from Him, but just who He is. And get to the place where nothing equals God in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds. Nothing rivals God. But above all, we want God. God is the object. God is the substance. God is the goal. And God is the target. And God is the very point of life. God's the meaning of life. When we get to the place where He's our ambition, He is the beginning, He is the end, He is all we want. And we pant after Him like the deer panteth after the water brook. And, and all else pales in comparison to God, then we're living right. God becomes our first cause, our, our chief good. He is, he is indispensable, and He's really all we want. That's the goal. Now notice in verse number 38, Jesus adds this is the first and great commandment. This is the first, number one, and great commandment. Our satisfaction in God. Do we find such a satisfaction in God that it fills every little remote corner of our heart? He's all that we want. All we want is His smile. All, all we want is His approval. All we want is His endorsement. All we want is to know that we're doing what He wants and no more. We're not running ahead of Him. We're not lagging behind where we ought to be. We're not buying things we shouldn't be buying or selling that which we shouldn't be selling or, or going where we shouldn't be going or whatever, living where we shouldn't be living. We just want what God wants, His approval, His smile, His endorsement. And, and, and God fills every corner of our heart. We love Him. We just want to please Him. That's all we want. Well, Jesus spoke of that. But he wasn't done here yet. He knew the heart of this spokesman, this Pharisee here. He's, he's going to zing the rest. But he finds within this one guy somebody who's not too far from the kingdom of God. And so he's going to add something here, and he's going to cause this seeker to think. In fact, I think even the, the story of the Good Samaritan enters in here, but I don't have time to get into that. might be the same situation. In verse number 39, this is what he adds. He says, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Whoa, wait a minute here. Wait a minute. Who does that? If your hand goes up in this room right now, you're a liar, okay? I, I don't, you would have to be in the elite fraction of a fraction, the elite fraction of 1%. If, if you're somebody who really loves everybody else, not the easily lovable people, but everybody else as you actually love yourself. How do you do that? Because we love ourselves. We won't admit to that. You even talk to somebody, oh, I just hate myself. No, he doesn't. We love ourselves readily. We uh, love ourselves passionately. We love ourselves uh, freely. We love ourselves constantly, <laughs> okay? We love ourselves sincerely. 
we're selfish. We're selfish by nature. In fact, it, it could be that selfishness is the mother of all sins. I think it was selfishness that compelled Eve to take and eat of the forbidden fruit. I, I can be like God? Wow! A me, 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 you know? And it was the devil who said, I shall ascend up into the, the heights. I shall be as God. I shall put my throne above the throne. And, and it was this I, 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 I thing. We find him very, very selfish here. So Jesus Christ is going to take these two commandments and he's going to link them together. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul and love everybody else the way you love yourself. And by the way, the Bible does link those two things together. I mean, years later... Uh, an aged apostle, John, probably in his 90s, would write this under Holy Spirit inspiration in 1 John 4.20. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And that sounds logical, right? It really does. We claim to love God, but, but there's somebody in this room sitting here and we don't care for them. Who are we kidding? If a man say, I love God, and he hateth his brother, he is a liar, okay? Who can honestly say, I love God with all my heart, and I love everybody. I just love everybody the way I love me. That's not easy, is it? You know what Einstein said about the Bible? He called it a simple book. Very, very elementary. And the free thinkers kind of poo-poo the Bible because like, that's so basic. Well, practice it, okay? Who's actually loving everybody the way they love themselves. If it's so simple, just practice something that basic. You can't. You can't. Now, this is the sum of the, the law, the sum of the whole Bible. We read that. Notice again in verse number 40 here, Jesus said, on these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. You mean love everybody else the way I love myself? I mean the way I love me? To us, that's very threatening. That, that's overwhelming. If I love everybody else, how am I going to have any time for myself? How am I going to meet my own needs? How, how can I be put out for everybody else without it putting me out immensely? Is Jesus Christ serious about this? Love everybody the way I love me? That will be the suicide of my happiness. I'm not going to be happy if I have to live for everybody else. I've got to spend the remaining decades of my life working on the happiness of other people. Are you serious about that? How am I going to do that? I mean, it's the end of my happiness. Well, is it? Does it really work that way? Was Jesus Christ an unhappy person? No. The Bible even talks about the joy of Calvary set before him. I mean, he lived life with joy. Yes, he was a man of sorrows and so on. He's acquainted with grief and all that, but there's a reason for that. But he was a, a joyful person, and he's the only person who ever lived who loved everybody else the way he loved himself, if you could put it that way. You know, everything within us longs for our own success. Everything within us longs for our own health. I want to be healthy. I want to keep me healthy. We long for our safety. How, I, and that's going to put me in peril. That's going to put me in danger. I mean, it's called self-preservation. It's incredibly powerful. It's, it's self-enhancement. How can I make myself better? It is self-advancing. Uh, How can I go higher on the ladder here? And if you look at everybody, if you look at society, if you look at our culture, how could Christ be serious here? We're going to love everybody the way we love ourselves. Is that really what Jesus Christ meant here? Well, that's what he said. And, and years later, Paul would re-echo that very sentiment in Romans 
He said, Love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. And if there be any other commandment, by the way, in between there, he mentions the Ten Commandments. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. He he says the exact same thing. It's extremely radical here. If you think about it, it's, it's fanatical. It's rabid. You're really going to love everybody the way you love yourself? It really cuts to the very root of our selfishness. Would to God it would sever it, by the way. If we could really do this somehow, it exposes bare and naked our love of self. Folks, let's just be honest. Well, actually, if I could make this statement, the very root of man's sinfulness is his pursuit for happiness really any other way. Uh, The root of man's sinfulness is his pursuit of happiness apart from God. That is the essence of sin. The essence of pride, really, is we think we can be happy, we can be fulfilled, we can have purpose in life without God. There is a verse back in the Psalms, Psalm 14.1, which says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. In our King James, our translators were honest enough to italicize those two words, there is. It helps us to understand the passage here. But if you really want to know the, the underlying meaning of the verse, it's, it's a fool who says, no God for me. I can do this thing without God. I can live without God. I can be happy without God. I can make money without God. I can whatever it might be. And there are a lot of billionaires, they've made a lot of money. There are a lot of actors, they've gotten famous. There are a lot of politicians, they've gotten powerful. A lot of athletes who've reached the top of their game. But the fool does it without God. The fool has said, I don't need God. The very root of man's sinfulness is his pursuit for happiness apart from God. And in addition, in addition, our sinfulness is revealed by the fact we're more concerned about our own happiness, then we are God's happiness and the happiness of our neighbor. You know, we're constantly praying, God bless me, oh God bless me, God bless... Well, why don't we try and bless God? Why don't we try and be a blessing to Him? Do we ask often enough, Lord, am I being a a blessing to You? Are You pleased with my life? Is this bringing You pleasure? Am I making You happy? Revelation 4.11 tells us the very reason where we, we were created is to bring God pleasure and to be a blessing to Him. But the essence of folly is when we try and live without God and we try and make ourselves happy and we're more concerned about our own happiness than God's, if you will, or even our, our neighbors. You know, the purpose of life is not that deep. We can talk about why. Why are we here? What is the purpose of life? Remember... Uh, Uh, The ancient philosophers and the kung fu stuff and, yes, grasshopper, I I can tell you the purpose of life and so on and so forth. What is the purpose of life? Why are we here? What is it all about? Remember the hokey pokey? That's what it's all about? No. What is it all about? It's all about bringing glory to God. It's about the glory of God. It's about the good of other people. That's it. It's so simple. And that's, that's the commandment. And on all this hangs the law and the prophets, bringing God glory, making God happy, loving God with all our heart, and loving others as ourselves. The good of others. So what are we truly living for? Because the root of all sin is not loving God with all our heart and not loving others as we do ourselves. 
The whole problem is our inborn, uh, deep, uh, defining trait of self-love. It's a concern for self. It's a powerful instinct. It is in deep down there. Self-fulfillment. We want to be happy. They asked Liz Taylor after she'd been married like six, seven, eight times, what is it that you want? You know what she said? I just want to be happy. Now she's being honest. She's going about it the wrong way. But why is it she married this one and got rid of him, married that one, got rid of him, married this guy, got rid of him, and so, and you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times, well, she's going about it all wrong. It, it wasn't about others at all. It was about her. It, it's a prime example of what I'm talking about here. We want to live with satisfaction. By the way, the reason for suicide is exactly what I'm talking about right here. This is why people commit suicide. It's the act of self-preservation. I am not happy. And I'm going to do whatever I have to do to stop feeling not happy. It's a love of self. They're not thinking at all about the funeral they'll leave behind, the heartache they'll leave behind, the tears they'll leave behind, the siblings and the loved ones who will torment themselves over that, that person who has taken their life. They don't think of that at all. All they know is, I'm not happy and I'm sick of not being happy. It's suicide. What we want is a meaningful, pleasant activity all day long to fill our day. And whatever it is, that's what we want. And so food, we want it for me. Nice clothes, we want them for ourselves. Nice quarters to live in, we want them for me. People to like us and people to spend time with us. And we want to diminish pain however possible. We want to increase happiness It is all self-love, plain and simple. And everyone has those traits, by the way. Christ got pretty convicting when he said in verse 39, The second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That little two-letter word, as, it has to be one of the most haunting in the Bible to me. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Now let me just say this. To hunger is not evil. To want to fill yourself, it's not an evil thing. To want shelter is not an evil thing. To want to keep yourself safe, that's not an evil thing. To want to uh, be healthy, that's not an evil thing. It's, It's not even an evil thing to want to be liked. You want to be liked, all right? I understand that. You want your life to count. I understand that. That's not an evil thing. God put that within us, by the way. None of those things are evil things. But, but what Christ is talking about when he's saying here as yourself, he's saying, okay, if you want to uh, feed yourself, you ought to want others at least to be fed as well. It should bother us that others don't go fed every day. If you want shelter, that's okay. But are you concerned about others having shelter? If uh, you want to be safe, that's fine. But are you as concerned about everybody else's safety? Are we as concerned about everybody else's health as we are our own? Are we as concerned about everybody else being liked as we are ourselves being liked? And do we want their life to count as we want our life to count? See what I'm saying? He's saying it's not wrong to want those things, but we ought to want those things for other people. If you get good grades in the Bible college, you ought to want other people to get good grades. You shouldn't snicker and and gloat if somebody else gets a lower mark than you want. That's not loving that person as you do yourself. In fact, in Luke 6.31, Christ said, And as ye would that men should do unto you, do ye also to them likewise. Isn't that simple? 
So you want somebody else to get good grades, or even better grades than you. The staff at Masters, we want to be a blessing to the students. The students at Masters, they want to be a blessing to the staff. And they want to take care of the facilities that the people of the church have graciously paid for and built because they love you the way they do themselves. See what I'm saying? Are we really, really practicing that? That word as is huge. It's a big word. Big word. So with the same energy that we pursue something for ourselves, we pursue it for somebody else. With the same passion, with the same creativity. Well, we can get real creative when it comes to ourselves, can't we? We can find a way to do it. Are we creative for other people? With the same uh, perseverance, with the same commitment that we commit to to get something for ourselves, we have that commitment for other people. That's, that's rough, folks. We see all kinds of selfishness displayed in all kinds of ways in our society. You know, it's an amazing thing when, when you're in traffic and the arrow says you better merge and you try and uh, speed ahead to find a little slot to get in and the guy behind you speeds up. Ooh, selfish, right? I'm not going to lose a millisecond by letting this guy in ahead of me because it's all about me. Some of you truck drivers are smiling. You see it every day, don't you? So much selfishness out there in traffic. You can't let that guy in, or uh, you cut that guy off, or you pull out in front of that guy. That's all self, folks. By the way, I think the ultimate in, in irritation, the worst move in traffic has to be when, when you pull out on the interstate, let's just take this interchange over here, and you're trying to merge into the left, and there's a guy behind you, and neither of you can get in to the left because there's a car coming, and so you're waiting for that guy. Well, he gets past the guy behind you, and what's that rat do? He pulls out, and he hems you in as well, and there you're stuck saying, how in the world? I mean, how selfish can you get? Unbelievable. Have you ever done that? I hope you've never done that. Boy, I'll tell you, when somebody does that to me, I'm, I'm just thinking, you selfish pig. Unbelievable. You'd really do that. It's, it's so about you, you would hem this guy in, drive him into the ditch if you have to, just so you can pull ahead a few seconds. Unbelievable. There's that Mr. Jekyll, though, in all of us, isn't there? God help us. It's in there. How do we stop it? How do we practice the golden rule? Well, it all revolves around this thing here. We see the cynical attitude. We see the contentious argument. We see the concise answer. And finally, we see the Christian's analysis. Now, in verse 40, Jesus says something here. It's, it's, it's just amazing. It's stupendous. It's mind-blowing. He says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He says, this is the sum and the substance of the entire Bible. It's so simple. He takes those 613 laws and he condenses them down to this. And he makes an amazing statement here. And I wouldn't believe it, honestly, unless it was the Son of God himself making it. He has all the authority of heaven behind him when he makes this statement. He raises the stakes here, and it's stunning. It really is. He says, you're to love God supremely, and you're to love everybody the way you love yourself. Now, it, it's not the first time he said this, by the way. In the same Gospel of Matthew, we know it's not the same scenario because it's way back in chapter 7. After talking about asking, seeking, and knocking, he says this in verse 12. Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Now, the work salvation crowd likes to take these kind of verses and teach this uh, ethical type of salvation. 
just, just be ethical and you'll make it into heaven. Christ is not at all talking about salvation here. So don't bring a work salvation into this. He's basically saying, treat others the way you want to be treated. Love others the way you love yourself. So here's the golden rule. We're supposed to love others the way we love ourselves. The lawyer asks the question here. And Christ gives incredible perspective on it. doesn't just answer the, the question, but he mentions something in addition to it, the second greatest commandment. He says, love God the way, with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as you do yourself. It's kind of like the, the whole Bible. Picture it as a giant scroll back in the days of Christ. Lowered down to the earth by two golden chains. One is attached to the right side of the throne of God. The other is attached to the left side of the throne of God. And he says, on these two things hang all the law and the prophet. Loving God with all your heart. Loving everybody else the way you love yourself. Wow, how is that possible? It's not. It's impossible. But spiritually speaking, supernaturally speaking, there is a way. We read this in Romans chapter 8, and verse number 3. It says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, What's that saying? It's saying you cannot will yourself to love other people the way you do yourself. It is humanly impossible. It, it just won't happen. Oh, I'm just going to get up in the morning and I'm just going to love everybody. I'm going to go out and spread love, love, love. It won't, it won't last till noon because we are so selfish. We are, we are so self-centered. We need divine help. We need supernatural help. Now, here's where the two commandments are hooked together. You, you don't have to focus on loving everybody. Just, just put that aside for now. What you need to focus on is loving God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. Make God the goal. Make Him the objective. Make Him the bullseye, if you will. I am going to spend time with Him. I am going to meditate upon His Word. I am going to talk to Him. I'm going to let Him talk to me. I'm going to enhance and foster and cultivate this relationship with God to where I love Him. I I mean, more than anything, I love Him. I'm still trying to get there, and I think you are as well. But every corner of your heart is filled with God. All you want is God. And then, and only then, when you are walking after the Spirit, as this verse says, will you be able to fulfill the righteousness of the law, which is summed up in this one thing, love your neighbor as yourself. What that verse behind me is screaming is God-reliance, not self-reliance. You cannot do it in in your flesh. The arm of flesh will fail you. But you you rely on God, and as we walk with God, we, we receive His compassion, and we can turn around and give His compassion. As we walk with God, we receive His wisdom. And and we can turn around and we can give His wisdom to others and help others. As we walk with God, we receive uh, grace through stressful times. And as a result, we can turn around now and, and, and help others with that grace through their stressful times. As we walk with God, we receive His love. And as a result, we can turn around and love others. So we don't run out of compassion. You say, boy, if, I just, if I'm just always focusing on others, I'm going to just run out of this stuff. You don't. 
You, you become a conduit. You're walking with God, you're getting, you're giving. You're getting compassion, you're giving it. You're getting wisdom, you're giving it. You're getting grace, you're giving it. You're getting love, and you're giving it. And, and there's not this competing claim on uh, these attributes of yours that you're going to run out of if you're always helping other people because God sustains us and then we turn around and we sustain others. That's what Christ has talked about back here in Matthew chapter 22. It doesn't spell the suicide of our happiness. It doesn't work that way. It becomes a never-ending fountain because our quest for happiness, don't miss this, our quest for happiness actually becomes a quest for God. Isn't that simple? Every day you get up and, and you, you pant after God as the heart does after the water brook. All you want is God. And as a result, that love that grows for God becomes an overflow for your neighbor and my neighbor. Yeah, I know it sounds radical. I know it sounds incredible. But that's why Jesus didn't stop with just answering the guy's question here. He said there's more to it. This is the, the offshoot of it. It really opens a whole new world of expanding joy when we realize... All right, make God the goal. Love God. That is the goal. That is the objective. And when we love God the way we ought to, we will love others the way we ought to. And that's what it all revolves around, folks, according to our Lord Jesus Christ. You've been listening to Pastor Tony Skeving of the Fargo Baptist Church in Fargo, North Dakota. If you would like a CD of today's message, you can obtain one by sending a gift of $2 to Fargo Baptist Church 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. That address again, Fargo Baptist Church, 3303 23rd Avenue South, Fargo, North Dakota, 58103. We hope you'll join Pastor Skeving next time right here on Pulpit Power. Pulpit Power is a production of Heaven 88.7.